Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What is up for the very last time in 2020, Tim? Happy New Year, Brian. Happy it's, New Year. It will be good to get to a year that is not 2020. Happy 2020. 20, happy almost 2021. Uh, this is going to be our last episode of the year. We're This is episode 20, a landmark for, for Embargoed. Uh, and we are recording this a little before the end of the year, but uh, this is going to be our last episode. We'll be going up just before New Year's. Uh, so welcome back to everybody out there. Appreciate you tuning in, sharing perhaps some downtime with us, or maybe just getting back to it in early January when you listen to this. Um, thanks to everybody. Uh, truly, I would say thanks to everybody who has, um, you know, been supportive, been reaching out, been sending us notes and comments and uh, about the pod throughout the year. We really do appreciate it. Um, it has been, uh, I would say, a labor of love. Mostly, we have this. We have really enjoyed doing the pod for year one, and we've made it through 20 episodes. We have survived, unless Tim or I gets hit by a bus, or. Uh, you know, contracts COVID in the next two weeks, we will have safely made it to 2021, which is quite an accomplishment. Uh, but uh, yeah, in all seriousness, thanks to everybody out there. It's uh, It's been fun so far and and just happy we can uh, keep do, doing this every couple of weeks and, and putting more trade nerd content out into the world. Yeah, it has been really fun. And who would have thought, you know, when we started to record those first few in the studio episodes that uh, we'd still be a couple of weeks later, we'd be starting a, a lockdown, surviving a pandemic and, um, and it would go all the way through to the, at least through the, the new year's episode and, and likely well into 2021. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but here we are, we have, we have made it. We're glad you've made it with us. Uh, and so why don't we, uh, we'll get right to it. So as usual, we're not giving legal advice. We're not talking about confidential information. All opinions are our own. Um, so blame us if if uh, you don't like something we say or you think we are um, speculating too wildly, even more wildly than we tend to sometimes when we're looking into the future. Um, the format for this one is going to be a little different uh, than normal. I should also add, um, again, as always, you can find us anywhere uh, any anywhere you get your pod content, Apple, uh, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, YouTube. Uh, please, if you like us, uh, you like the pod, please uh, subscribe, give us a rating, hopefully a five star rating, and uh, stay tuned with us uh, as we turn the corner, thankfully, into 2021. Um, the format for this one slightly different than what we normally do, as we teased on the last episode. We're going to do an all all lightning round top ten. Uh, for 2020. Um, and the top 10 is, uh, I should clarify, we're not necessarily ranking. Uh, these are going to be 10 that are in no particular order. I should say that for for, to, for starters. Not surprisingly, there'll be a lot of China topics, um, but these are in no particular order. We're terming these to be and defining this loosely as top 10 sanctions and export control issues, obviously, mostly thinking about from the US perspective. Um, uh, stories of the year. So these are these are all going to be topics and issues 
and items that we have talked about to some degree over the course of the year, some of which we haven't talked about in quite a long time, some of which we've been talking about incessantly for the past several months. Um, and the idea here is we're gonna give this sort of lightning round treatment. So we're gonna be kind of each giving just a quick thought or two, reflecting on what it, what it all means, what this particular story means, what we took away from it, what we might be expecting in, in the next year on this front, uh, something along those lines. So that, that's really the format. Um, we'll round out with um, a bit of an honorable mention category at the end because there were obviously a lot of other things that we're going to be leaving out. Um, but I think we have 10 items, 10 stories that I think are pretty representative of what we have deemed to be sort of the most interesting, most consequential uh, kind of stories and topics of the year that we have been tackling and been thinking about and talking about both on the pod and otherwise. So that is the format. Tim, before we before we get started, any any final thoughts? Any any other any just, other comments? Just ten stories, no winners and losers, because every story is a winner. Every story is a winner. Yes, um, unlike in the U.S. presidential election, where there is exactly. definitely one winner and one loser. And this um, this the election that created this top ten list. There was it was not infected with fraud. There was no fraud whatsoever. No collusion. This is a fraud-free list that was tallied um, using uh, the utmost uh, people with the highest integrity and um, no, exactly. no, no, no tampering by the Russians. No, nothing. It, this is a this this was created in a bubble, and uh, there's been a, there's been a recount, and these are the ten. These are the these 10 are stories. the unimpeachable results of a of a, a pristine process. Yes, exactly. Um, so with that we will uh we will get started so here we are for the all lightning round top 10 list for 2020. so uh, we're going to start with one of our favorite topics and again these are in no particular order but to start with one of our favorite topics huawei so we've obviously talked about huawei a lot throughout the year uh and i think it is uh kind of perfectly timed that we bring this back home at the end of the year um, I think in my mind, sort of two of the biggest, there are so many Huawei topics that we've covered and that are out there that are that are consequential. Um, I think the two that stick out to me, obviously the special foreign produced direct product rule that BIS introduced, which took the uh, you know unprecedented step of essentially extending the reach of the EAR for Huawei and transactions involving Huawei. Um, that is one that we have certainly wrestled with, thought about, talked about, advised clients about just a massive amount throughout the year and is still reverberating and something that people are dealing with and understanding and, and, and having consequences. That's sort of one aspect, certainly. The other is the uh, criminal case against Huawei and in particular against Huawei's CFO, Meng Wanzhou, uh, and I think that is one we've talked about throughout the course of the year. She's obviously being, uh, she's in Canada at the moment and extradition proceedings have been going on for quite some time. Just last week, it was reported that she may be in talks with DOJ to resolve her case and to enter into a deferred prosecution agreement that would allow her to go back to China. And so that is obviously a major development. Uh, we don't have any sort of special insight on that or the timing of that, but I, I did think that it was appropriate to lead with Huawei in part because this Huawei spans the gamut of all the issues we care about from hardcore kind of export controls, compliance issues, all the way to the criminal enforcement side. And um, I think those two sort of subtopics perfectly capture 
why Huawei was one of the most interesting stories of the year. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it was Huawei this and Huawei that on a lot of the podcasts, and and for good reason. So so I think it's it's definitely the biggest story of the year, or in the top ten, since there are no winners and losers. Uh, I you know we're recording this well before Christmas, but I, I predict that that this will be resolved in time for Christmas, and that Ming Wanji will not be the only person going home. Um, I, I think what, what appears to me to be going on is a negotiation in which she goes home, the Chinese are holding some individuals that at the least Michaels. arguably, yeah, the, the Michaels, the Michaels. Yeah, yeah, in retaliation for this, um, I think the Canadians will be very happy to, to have this resolved and off their plate. So I think this is a Christmas time, holiday time uh, negotiation that likely will be resolved in a way that people get to go home for the holidays. That's it's quite possible, but you know we will we will see we'll see if we're right or wrong about that one uh, when we revisit on the next episode. But in any event, that's topic number one. There you go. Yep. Story number one wrapped. wrapped. Story number two. Tim. Story number two. So we said earlier this year, um, if there was an OFAC webpage that related to sanctions on China, um, that that would be a big deal. And now there there are multiple web pages, and there's there should be another one coming. So there is a Hong Kong related sanctions webpage at this point. There is a communist Chinese military institutions web uh, webpage at this point that OFAC has with respect to the to the executive order that we talked about last week. And and th- there also is a statute imposing a sanction for Uyghur related conduct against China. There's no sanctions page yet that I could find and no executive order implementing it because those same sort of sanctions at least so far have been imposed under the Global Magnitsky sanctions, which does have its own webpage. But, but you know, at the end of the year, when you're re- really reflecting on one of the big changes um, from an OFAC perspective between 2019 and 2020, one has to be that there is a China, a couple of China web pages that deal with sanctions programs that OFAC has now. I mean, China is a country under US sanctions and it wasn't in 2019. I will say kind of as we transition to a new administration, I still think that uh, more uh, careful analysis needs to go in into what these programs are trying to accomplish and what they can conceivably accomplish because most sanctions programs to be effective have have a goal. They have a realistic goal. The sanctions are usually targeted if they're going to try and change countrywide behavior at countries who can be really incredibly damaged by the sanctions and will have an incentive to change their behavior. China's as big as we are, and we've never really tried to impose sanctions against countries with economies that are that huge. And, And so, you know, whether or not those programs will work, and Look, the Hong Kong sanctions are having some effect. We talked about it on the last episode, and 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 but it's not a huge effect. It certainly isn't like China is going back to 2019 with respect to Hong Kong's autonomy. Uh, protesters, even in the last few days, are are being put in jail um, in China, being charged with crimes in China in terms of violation of the national security law for for simply exercising what we in the states would view as our First Amendment rights. And so so I, I think that it's a big deal that we now have a sanctions program with respect to China. I'll be very curious to see how the 2021 OFAC 
implements that sanctions program, how the Biden administration tweaks it, whether or not some of these behaviors are, are really tried to change more through diplomacy in, with the Chinese rather than, than through the use of sanctions, because I just think um, it's very hard to change the behavior of a country and an economy as big as China through the use of these sorts of relatively minimal sanctions. And I, I don't see it happening, but I certainly think that it is one tool in the diplomacy belt in terms of changing them. And so I, I think it's, it, it is something to think about as we head into 2021 as to whether those web pages are still around in a year. I suspect they will be, but I, but I also think that it, it's, it's hopefully part of a more coordinated program to try and figure out what sorts of behavior we want the Chinese to modify and, and a more realistic approach to how to get it. Yeah, I think the, uh, obviously, as we talked about, as this was all sort of coming together early in the year, China's been a frequent target of sanctions enforcement over the years. And um, many, many entities and individuals in China are on various U.S. lists, um, notably with respect to Iran sanctions, North Korea sanctions, et cetera. But the fact that there are now uh, programs that are stood up that are directly targeting China and and kind of domestic conduct that they're engaged in on a wide scale, I think is a big deal symbolically, certainly. Agree with Tim that um, what the end game is here or how effective these are ultimately going to be is a big open question. Diplomacy, I think, is certainly one thing to look for in terms of uh, the new administration. I think also, as we've touched on in the past, whether or not there could be any consensus to have sort of multilateral pressure applied on China with respect to some of these areas and programs, especially with respect to Hong Kong and the national security law in Hong Kong. There was some talk right away about maybe uh, other countries or uh, sort of getting behind this push from the U.S., but essentially we've gone it alone on all of these things as, as has been the case the last several years. And so whether or not there's anybody else who's sort of willing to get on board with this uh, is, is a big open question. And obviously there are big collateral consequences to doing that because China throws its way around and uh, really takes, takes it out on people who try to stand up to them uh, and, and address these issues through sanctions or other means. And so I think that's a big open question um, but for me, that'll be, that'll be an interesting one to keep an eye on going forward. So with that, let's go to story number three, which is one that, again, we have talked about a lot. We talked about extensively on the last, um, on the last episode, which is the new military and user and military and use restrictions imposed by BIS earlier this year, targeting, uh, certain, uh, goods, U.S. items that are, uh, to being exported to China. Russia and Venezuela. I think everybody understands that this is primarily a China-based move. Uh, that's why this is being this was rolled out and implemented. And as we have talked about a lot on the on the pod, and as we have talked about a lot with our clients, this is really uh, you know a big shift and a big change because it does open up um, just new uh, vistas of compliance. Uh, headaches and concerns and due diligence requirements relating to uh, the possibility that you may be, especially if you are a company that knows that you have uh, you have goods or software or technology that's covered by the relevant um, categories under supplement number two, uh, that you have to understand uh, in every case whether or not you may have a, ch a military and user on the other end. And oftentimes that is not a very clear cut uh, distinction. And 
how do you wrestle with that? How do you make those risk assessments? How do you, what process can you put in place? What do you do when, as Tim talked about the last time, what do you do when there's barely anything in the public record to, to help you understand who the company is doing business with because it's been scrubbed or removed because Chinese companies are now aware that there are, being, there are going to be assumptions made and, and that they may be cut off from certain goods that um, might fall under this rule. So it is a massive, um, it is a massive shift and a massive burden, I think, for exporters of U.S. Uh, of of certain U.S. goods and software and technology that are subject to the rule uh, to China, especially. Of course, Russia is also implicated here. Venezuela is under the rule, but I think it's that is a sort of minimal effect, at least as we've seen so far. Um, so yeah, so that that's really it. Is just you know again reflecting that that is a pretty sizable shift. And again, as we've said in the past. We don't necessarily see that this this rule or this um, sort of focus is going away anytime soon. And in fact, it could very well be expanded under the, the Biden administration. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, that's where that's where things are with this rule is that we have this situation where I don't think there's going to be a change from from Trump to Biden in terms of the U.S. resolve to uh, try and push back against Chinese civilian military integration and and to to have more transparency, or if there's not transparency, then to essentially not let the the what the civilian-looking companies act as procurement agents for the Chinese military. With all that said, uh, I do think there'll be a lot of tweaks to this because right now for the reasons that we talked about last time and other times, this rule is a mess and it's really hard to comply with because the catch-all for what is a military end user is so broad that it, it, it could be read to mean that any group, any company, any person that's ever done any work for the military is by definition a military end user, which I think would be too broad a reading, but it is, you know, that language is so vague that it's, it's one possible reading. So it's, it's in play. play. Yeah. And so, so like it, somebody's got to fix that. And I think the way to fix it is to actually create a list, but to have it be an exclusive list with, in, you know, in the absence of red flags to show otherwise, so that you don't have to go do this huge amount of due diligence for every company that you're dealing with in China. I mean, if the government thinks there's a military end user, then put them on a list. And if they don't think that they're a military end user, then don't. But the idea that the that each company exporting to China is going to have those sort of resources to go do more due diligence than the federal government has already done with respect to China is just unrealistic and kind of unworkable. Yeah, I will just add as one final thought there before we move on to story number four is, as we talk about a lot, we know that the government prizes strategic ambiguity in its regulations from time to time. Uh, and th as things exist now, there is plenty of that. And even if there were a list that gets rolled out, as we talked about the last time, it still appears that there's going to be room for that because it is not going to be an exclusive list. It is going to be uh, sort of a, a working list that will be updated periodically. And I, I tend to have my doubts that they would be willing to give that up. Yeah, I, I agree. But I think it's a huge, it's a huge, huge change from, you know, this time, this time in 2019, uh, there was, there was no such requirement with respect to Chinese military end users at all. Yes. And now it's gone from no, no restrictions in terms of, you know, end users to just a really difficult restriction to deal with. And I, I don't know how they get it. I think it's not going away, but I, I think it could, if they're going to keep it, they, they could do a lot better. 
And with that, let's go to story number four, which is Tim is going to introduce in the question, and he's going to address the question of, has our maximum pressure campaign against Iran been maxed out? Yes. Next question. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that the, the sanctions against Iran right now are so complete and so overarching. There are, there are some areas of trade that are still allowed, but it's really hard to certainly to get uh, any banks to finance that sort of trade because in the fall, last fall, the, the um, administration and, and OFAC put all the remaining Iranian banks onto a secondary sanctions list that, that makes it pretty much impossible to do banking um, with Iranian banks and still also be connected to the U.S. financial system. It's not impossible. It should be easier because it is U.S statutory policy to allow humanitarian transactions to continue with Iran. Iran's been hit, you know, at least as hard as we have by the COVID virus. And so the idea that uh, the U.S. is then sanctioning Iran while it is trying to um, protect itself from this virus and, and save lives is not something that I think uh, that OFAC wants to take ownership of or that the administration wants to take ownership of, but that's what's happening right now. And, and I, I think that, that that is the result of the fact that there's just, there's really no way to put more sanctions on Iran because everyone uh, outside of Iran who has any risk aversion to sanctions is already staying out of Iran. And so I don't think that you're gonna change the behavior of anybody else. Now that said, I, I one of my predictions for 2021, uh, we predicted that, that uh, you know, Huawei, or at least the, the Ming Wenzhou part of it will be resolved. I, I do think that we will not see this sort of maximum pressure when we talk, when we have the year end review for 2021. I do think that whether we get back into the JCPOA or not, that there is going to be some ratcheting down from the US side in terms of the, the, the sanctions, particularly those that have been imposed in the last six months or so. Some will stay. Um, you know, some were consistent with pre previous administration policy in terms of the Revolutionary Guard and, you know, malicious actions in the region with respect to Syria or potentially with respect to Yemen, although I think that's a more complicated issue. But I, I definitely think that we are seeing the high water mark for Iran sanctions, although it might even get a little higher between now and January 20th. But I think as of January 21st, it, it's likely that the Iran sanctions will go in a different direction, assuming that the Iranians um, change their behavior with respect to the to the nuclear deal and start uh, coming back into compliance with that deal. Now, it could be that Iran decides it doesn't want any part of this. And, and at that point, um, we'll see what the Biden administration does. But I think there will be in conjunction with our allies who, uh, particularly the allies in Europe who have been against this maximum pressure policy all along, I, I think we're going to see a considerable rolling back of that, probably to the level that we saw during the JCPOA period in, in 2016, 2017. Yeah, I, I, I think the I think the pace and the tone of whatever maximum pressure means will change, uh, certainly come late January. I would say that in my mind, the the one sort of additional thing that could happen, that we could see happen, and I don't quite know what would precipitate this, but as we know, this sort of secondary sanctions authorities that are now back in place since November 2018, uh, and that have been sort of supplemented and expanded since that time, would potentially allow for lots of targeting of non-US companies and conduct that 
we know to some extent is still going on at least, um, that could, to the extent that there was an effort or desire to dry up the rest of, uh, the rest of you know cross-border commerce that is happening with respect to Iran, that would be potentially the way to do it. So again, I can't foresee that that's all, all that likely under the Biden administration, but that would sort of be one piece of the puzzle that seems to be, that is definitely an untapped piece at this point. That's all I would really say yeah. about that. No, you're, you're completely right. I mean, they could certainly could crack down even more on non-Iranian companies, particularly ones in Europe, which, which haven't really been the focus of sanctions at this point, but, but definitely could be. And, and because of the blocking statute that's in place in Europe, many of them are sort of in that position where, you know, their home governments are essentially saying you need to, you can't, you can't be respecting what the U.S. is telling you to do in any event because it's illegal under our own, under our own laws. And so, yeah, that would that would be the one scenario. I I don't again. I'm not handicapping that as being particularly likely, but I think that would be sort of the one scenario uh, or still, the one tool that I could see. Well, I mean, there's still time between now and January 20th. Maybe that's that's the next the final shoe to drop. Yeah, maybe that'll come out on on January 19th. There'll be a list of you know 100 companies across Europe that are being sanctioned um, for for having uh, doing business since uh, November of 2018 with Iranian um, certain sectors of the Iranian economy, who knows, but in any event, let's, let's put maximum pressure aside for the moment and let's turn to uh, story number five, which is again, another one of our favorites that we spent a lot of time talking about the last several months, which is TikTok and WeChat and specifically wanting to focus on the executive orders, obviously that were issued in August early August, uh, you know, at the time these came out, I think our reaction to them, much like the reaction of many others was, you know, this is, these are somewhat unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this. It's, it's, it's very interesting that this is the tool and the means that uh, the White House has taken to try to uh, essentially address what they have you know uh, what they have styled as a as a significant national security threat due to the access to uh, user data in the United States uh, across these platforms. And of course, uh, after the Commerce Secretary weighed in in September with the and articulated specific prohibitions, all that we have seen since that time is is court victory after court victory for the plaintiffs who are on the side of keeping TikTok and WeChat operational and in business. And I, I have to say that um, this has been a, a, a fairly spectacular failure, I would say, on the part of the administration to try to impose these restrictions. Um, as well-intentioned as they may have been to protect national security, I think we had the feeling at the time that they have that they may have been fairly hastily thrown together. Uh, of course, TikTok was sort of on the back of the CFIUS action, looking at potential divestiture. That is still unresolved. And then the WeChat executive order, the WeChat Tencent executive order seemed to be kind of a throw-in and an add-on, the way it was even described in sort of the preamble to that executive order. And uh, uh, you know, as as things have played out, and as preliminary injunctions have been put in place in multiple courts now to prevent the um, to pre- prevent the uh, these executive orders from taking effect, and to keep TikTok and WeChat fully in circulation and in operation in the United States, I I, I don't think that there's um, 
it's fairly unprecedented that, that uh, some action like this that is taken in the name of national security pursuant to IEPA authorities would sort of fall flat on its face. And I, and I know that I was on the record certainly at the time as being very skeptical as to whether or not the, the parties, whether they be the companies themselves or, or other users or people with an interest here would have much success in court because uh, as, as we've said many times, IEPA is a very broad authority, much much rests on that across the sanctions landscape, obviously, um, in the US. Uh, but because of the uh, the Berman amendments, the carve outs that exist, that is, and, and sort of the first amendment considerations that go along with using these platforms, the, they have, the courts have, pretty uniformly found that these are these are just these were not proper exercises of authority uh, by the by the president and so I, I think that uh, what what the long-lasting effects are of that whether these stand whether they get appealed whether we see more action that is taken to challenge IEPA I mean based activities uh, in the future I don't know, but again, these are sort of, this is in some ways perfect storm on these because of the nature of the tools and the applications themselves and the, and what they're doing and what they're permitting and what the users are, um, how they're interacting with these platforms. But at the same time, uh, pretty, pretty astonishing that we're sitting here now. I would not have predicted sitting in August that we'd be sitting here at the end of the year looking at both executive orders just being completely shot down by the courts. That's yeah. just my perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, where I sit now, I, I think it started with a bang and may well end with a fizzle. I, I think it when the administrations change, I mean, this is a policy that President Trump personally seemed to own. And while that certainly means that you're going to have the full weight of the executive branch behind it when President Trump becomes president, it does make it a little easier for um, a successor to undo because it's really not seen as a national policy. It's seen as kind of the policy from one side. And if another party takes office, um, that's the sort of thing that gets either undone or walked away from. So I think if it's not wrapped up soon, it'll probably be wrapped up in, in late January in a way that uh, just people are able to walk away and save face and, and move on to other things. So I, I think this will be, we will not be talking about this in 20, at the end of 2021. Yeah. Walk away from a pretty big, pretty big L I think for the, for the president on this yeah. one, but uh, for everybody else who's still involved, I think that's right. So uh, with that, let's move on to number six, story number six, which is Russia. What's going on with Russia, Tim? Are they our friend? So, are they our enemy? What's happening with Russia? Are we, do we have sanctions against Russia anymore? I don't know. It's, I mean, who even knows what's going on with Russia? But I, I, I will say, I think at the end of 2021, we will have heard a lot more about Russia than we there, than we're hearing right now, because I agree, you know, we, we had, when, when Russia invaded uh, Crimea and uh, took actions against Ukraine with respect to, you know, at least the U.S. view and the Western view was that they were fomenting a, essentially a, a rebellion in Ukraine. You know, there were some pretty serious sanctions that were imposed. And the perception in Congress when the Trump administration took over was that uh, President Trump seemed a little bit too willing to give away those sanctions for nothing. And so Congress uh, in, in overwhelming numbers passed uh, CATSA in, in 2017 and, and ramped up the sanctions even more. And in April of 2018, uh, then the Treasury Department did 
take some action. You know, that was really the one big Russia enforcement action. And we'll talk about one other Russia enforcement action later, but 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 which is of a very different type. But but the the one major enforcement action really came in 2018 when Treasury put together this oligarchs list, or at least relying on the oligarchs list, put a lot of individuals who owned you know, multinational businesses onto the SDN list and created havoc. I mean, I think it really was, uh, they, they made one foray into this and it didn't go so well. And so pretty much we haven't really seen almost any enforcement action with respect to the Russia sanctions after that. I mean, it's been almost nothing or close to nothing. I think that the, um, that OFSI actually, ironically over in the UK has a, has, has the biggest enforcement action of any of the Russia sanctions. The biggest penalty for any violation of the Russian sanctions came from OFSI, which is at least so far has been known for not imposing any penalties. And so it is kind of ironic that you see almost nothing coming out of OFAC with respect to, to Russia. They do still have a lot of sanctions in place under Katza though. I mean, there is, a lot of there, there are a lot of secondary sanctions that so far really have have sat dormant. My my understanding is that uh, I read today actually that uh, the U.S. is potentially going to impose sanctions against Turkey uh, for purchasing some uh, Russian military equipment. So it may be that the the Trump administration ends with one kind of final push on the Russian sanctions. But really, it's been one one foray in April 2018. Kind of was a big big leap into Russia's sanctions enforcement, but since then it's been very quiet. Yeah, I think the, um, I, I agree with all that. I mean, I think we we can certainly attest to the fact that the sanctions, even if not being ter- not being very vigorously enforced by the US do matter and do get factored into many, many business yep. decisions and compliance decisions around the world because we get plenty of Russia sanctions questions. I think I have one that came in this overnight, uh, just last night from from a client. Uh, so uh, you know, it's not as if they don't matter. But I think in terms of the uh, the emphasis and the resources and the uh, focus on this, it's clearly been deprioritized for the last few years. And I think there there is a very good likelihood that that will be reinvigorated as 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 uh, priorities change under the new administration. So um, there are plenty of tools at the, at the disposal of, of US enforcers, as Tim mentioned, whether under CASA or otherwise, the pre-existing ones relating uh, to the sort of first wave of sanctions imposed back um, after the invasion of Crimea. And so, uh, yeah, I, there's and, and no shortage of, of conduct, certainly. There's, again, more allegations that Russia was trying to interfere in the 2020 election. There's Nord Stream 2, there's support for the Assad regime in Syria. There's all kinds of things, right, that we continue to see that are, you know, actions that are directly detrimental to U.S. interests uh, and and so are widely perceived to be. So, so we shall see. I think it's just sort of a reminder to everybody that Russia is is out there. Also, I would say in in similar to what we discussed with China at the beginning, when Tim was talking about sort of taking sanctions actions against a big, sophisticated economy, I think the 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 anecdotal data, at least, I haven't seen hard numbers on this recently, but the anecdotal data certainly is that the U.S. sanctions have had an impact in Russia and have done, um, you know, have you know put a dent in in certain sectors and productivity that have been targeted by those sanctions. So, you know, to the extent that there is that is a success story to some degree, 
um, you know, that's that's an interesting case study perhaps for for China and how we carry forward with China in the next administration. Obviously, I think with enforcement being uh, perhaps less vigorous over the last few years, uh, hard to say kind of what the sort of the tail on that will be. But in any event, I think that's that is something to keep in mind as well. Um, so with that, let's we're going to take a hard pivot and we're going to actually talk now about we're going to move we're going to go to court and we're going to talk about two court actions, two very different court actions that um, one actually we're fudging a little because one actually concluded sort of at the very end of last year, but we talked about it way back at the beginning of the year and it really didn't, um, I think people weren't really reckoning with it until January of this year, so we think it's fair game. But the first of the, the, first of the two that we're going to talk about, which is story number seven, is um, the, uh, the conviction of Ali Sadr in SDNY that was uh, that was dismissed and thrown out after uh, details of massive prosecutorial misconduct came out on the part of the U.S. Attorney's Office in SDNY, and I, I think this is a big deal for a few reasons. We talked about uh, this case when the when the jury convicted because it was right at the beginning of the pandemic, and I think we were also interested because I believe the jury may have deliberated remotely. Um, for at least part of the part of the deliberations at the end of the trial, um, and that's obviously a very odd circumstance, or was at the time at least. And then, you know, several months later, when the court filings started coming out to um, to sort of reveal the extent of the misconduct that had taken place in connection with withholding Brady material and making misrepresentations to the court and other things, um, then we we started taking more notice, and we we spent a whole segment talking about this at the time that it became clear that the case was going to be dismissed. Uh, and then the, what was left to be decided was sort of what form and fashion that was going to take. And, um, and the judge made clear that the government was not going to get off easy without sort of reckoning with what they had done and providing sort of more details on what they had done and what they were going to do to address that. Um, I would encourage anybody who's interested in this to take a look at the opinion and order that was issued by Judge Nathan in that case in mid-September, September 16th. It is a it is a pretty astonishing document. I, I, as a former Justice Department employee and prosecutor, and as somebody who's worked as a defense attorney for many years as well, I think we all know that these types of things happen. They happen all too often um, in, in our justice system. Uh, but I think the extent of this is is pretty striking. And the thing that I most want to talk about and comment on just from the perspective of of sanctions, and is in particular criminal enforcement of sanctions, which is what I used to do uh, prior to joining Miller and Chevalier, um, you know, there is there is sometimes uh, accusations that uh, the the sort of the the expectations and the standards here in terms of what people are expected to know and sort of knowledge, willfulness, and understanding of, of these rules and the laws um, is, it's just sort of unreasonable. And many a sanctions defendant have defended on the idea that, look, I, I, I didn't know the particulars of the rules. You know, I'm not a U.S. citizen. I didn't, I didn't know that it was it wasn't okay for me to make this, you know, make interact with this party or to to take this um, take this action or what have you. Um, and and I think there's always been a belief that look at at core you can sort of establish clearly whether somebody did or did not do something with kind of willful criminal intent 
Uh, and you know, it's a high standard to meet, but obviously the Justice Department feels in many cases they can meet that standard. Here, when um, it came out that the Justice Department obviously uh, held back information that suggested exactly the opposite that went straight to that issue of the intent and the mens rea of the defendant in this case, particularly communications with OFAC and OFAC's um, you know, not taking any action relating to, to, to the various actions that the, the Justice Department was holding up as being uh, you know, uh, purely uh, representative of, of you know, a criminal state of mind and of the bad intent here. You know, that's just, it's, it's sort of, it's disappointing, obviously, uh, and, and I'm not sort of calling out anybody in particular. I don't even, to be perfectly candid, I haven't gone back to sort of dig in to see, even see who the, I know some, you know, some of the people who are involved that their names have been floated publicly and it's out there, but I'm not even trying to sort of put anybody in particular um, on on blast here, but at the same time, it's it's just it is a very noteworthy story. And I think it is for people who are now on the other side of this, like Tim and I, it is something that um, we certainly, I know, are very mindful of as we discuss this, these types of issues with clients or have clients that are involved in potentially, uh, you know, investigations like this or criminal cases like this and, and having to sort of really kick the tires and never, never remember, never forget to, um, you know, take this seriously that, you know, don't take what you're told at face value, investigate, dig, push, ask more. Um, again, we gave kudos to, uh, the team at Stepto who tried this case. Um, you know, again, hats off to them. They did a great job in vindicating their clients' rights and interests here and, and getting to the truth ultimately, uh, as difficult as it was and as much as, as there was, there were, uh, you know, impediments in the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of this case and why it's, you know, one of the, the biggest developments of this year, I'd have two thoughts. One is kind of don't forget about OFAC if you're defending a criminal case, because it sounds like, and I, again, I, I haven't gone back and looked at the materials in a while, but my it, it, it sounds like the, the prosecutors who tried the case tried to convince OFAC to take civil action against the same defendant and OFAC refused. And they didn't just try once. I think they tried more than once and it was actually the prosecutors working on the case. And then they never told the defense about that, which is, I mean, it's it seems quite bad. Now, I think the other lesson that I would take is that there was an internal investigation that was apparently conducted regarding the same uh, facts overseas by one of the, the foreign banks, I think a bank over in Germany, um, which also, uh, happens quite often in these cases, particularly when they're they arise at the corporate level like this one did and and the money passes through banks. And that investigation as well, I, as I understand it, uh, thought that there was a lot more nuance. And so, you know, the criminal cases are supposed to be reserved and that, and you know, you know this better than me, Brian, they're re- reserved for the willful instances where there where there's really not much doubt that there was a you know, a sanctions violation to be had and that it was a problematic sanctions violation. And the only thing you're really trying to get at is whether this person knew better or not and and whether they did it intentionally. And here, um, it looks like this was a situation where there was quite a bit of nuance, so much so that OFAC didn't even decide to commence an enforcement action against somebody who was obviously, it would have been easy to do that. I I think that they would have gotten a lot of cooperation from the U.S. Attorney's Office that would have been happy to provide all the documents they had. So if OFAC wanted to commence an enforcement action, it was teed up on a platter. The fact that they didn't 
is is I think revealing, which is probably why it was never disclosed, or at least it was disclosed very very late. And and I do say, you know, I I've been involved in trials where evidence comes in late, and sometimes you know you understand that. I I, I think I come to it with a skeptical eye, so I probably understand it. I'm less understanding about it, and also because I've seen it so much. But here, it just seems outrageous because this is something that certainly was known within the prosecution team quite well when OFAC decides to take a pass on this. And the fact that it's showing up in the middle of the trial is so outrageous that I think that's probably what was driving the judge to do what she did, and, and quite correctly so. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, if you read that opinion from September, there are many, many other facets to this, but we're, we're sort of we're sort of focusing in on the on the things that are obviously most relevant from the sanctions perspective in the IEPA con- conspiracy conviction. Uh, but in any event, uh, yeah, that that's just one that uh, you, we don't see cases like this all that often at the federal level that get this much attention, especially in a district like SDNY that is regarded as, you know, certainly one of the premier prosecuting districts in the Justice Department. Uh, and and also in, in sanctions criminal cases, we just don't see this very often. So certainly one to take note of and why it made the list. Uh, with that, let's pivot to another court case, one that um, also uh, was a success story from the perspective of a, a private party uh, sort of going up against the government, and that's um, ExxonMobil versus OFAC. Yeah, they fought the law and and they won, which is not normally how that story comes out. So, so as you'll recall, um, Exxon was penalized by OFAC uh, a number of years ago uh, for a transaction. I, I believe it was involving Rosneft in uh, a Russian oil company. Rosneft was on the sectoral sanctions list, but the transaction was permissible under the sectoral sanctions, but it was signed by the the CEO uh, of Rosneft who was on the SDN list. And the he was the countersigner of the contract. And so the the penalty against Exxon was for dealing in the property of an SDN. Now, or receipt of services, I think it was. was I think it was receipt of services. Yeah, it was receipt of services. um, Well, there was a there was a question about whether or not he had a property interest as well, and that he he was providing a service, um, whether or not that was also you know a a service that was provided by him in his personal capacity, or was there was a service being provided by Rosneft? And so 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 basically, um, you know the what what. The OFAC said was, well, it's clear because we have a FAQ in connection. I believe it was with the Venezuela program that says that, you know, if if a person you can deal with the Venezuelan government, but if somebody who is on the SDN list with the Venezuelan government is actually if you're doing a transaction with them, that's a problem. And OFAC said, so you should be able to tell that that in the Russian sanctions program, the same principle would apply. It, Exxon challenged the penalty in court, and the the court said that the the previous guidance and the 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 language of the sanctions uh, and a number of statements that uh, OFAC had made publicly and Treasury officials had made publicly, drawing this distinction between people sanctioned as people and entity sanctioned, and 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 whether or not and and the fact that these sanctions were not designed against individuals were not designed to necessarily change company behavior. And those sorts of sanctions 
or those sorts of statements, the, the district court in Texas decided what were enough to create um, questions about whether or not Exxon had fair notice that if it engaged, if it signed this contract with Rosneft, which was permissible, it would be engaging in sanctionable conduct because a sanctioned individual who was acting in his clearly as in his CEO hat not as as uh, the you know in a personal capacity whether or not he would whether or not that would be receipt of a service from an SDN um, or dealing in the property of an SDN and and that uh, and and it also distinguished the Venezuela guidance by pointing out that uh, that OFAC says over and over again every program is different. And so what is said in one program can't necessarily be taken as guidance in another program. Now, we we take that with a grain of salt as well, but I mean, OFAC can't expect you to take it with too much of a grain of salt because it does make very clear that if it gives guidance that says you can do something, you're really not supposed to rely solely on that in order to do it if it's from a different program. And you know, if it gives guidance that says you can't, then what's to say that you can't? You should be relying on that in a completely different program. So, it was. I think from an OFAC and compliance perspective, it was an interesting decision because I do think that there there are a lot of things that OFAC does that are not clearly, uh, that, that, that and a lot of sanctions questions that come up where the answer is not clear and companies get penalized quite a bit for guessing wrong. Um, and this says there are at least limits to that doctrine. Yeah, so not to, um, I would have gotten this wrong too if I hadn't just looked it up. It's actually the Burma sanctions oh, sorry, program. The, the now actually, repealed was, Burma sanctions. The now, the, now, the now repealed Burma sanctions. So the guidance was an FAQ issued under the Burma sanctions program, just to correct the record. But no, in any event, Burma I, would have very, got, I would have gotten that wrong too. So Burma is very different from Venezuela. So. Yeah, so uh, it's been a while since I've gone back and looked at it. But I think the I think the the main comment that I want to make and, and the reason I think ultimately that this was worthy of inclusion on the list is exactly what sort of Tim was just alluding to about this whole idea of fair notice. I know that in our own dealings with OFAC, since this has has arisen and has been issued, this is now something that we put front and center. And I think that we talk about with our clients a bit more and that I know that is being discussed and thought about in terms of how you push back on OFAC a little bit when you feel like you are being subjected to perhaps an unfair uh, reading of their own regs. Uh, and, and you know, well, do we really have fair notice of this? And the idea that there's perhaps an avenue to go to court and use this as a lever to um, to undermine or undercut what they are, they have been taken as sort of settled uh, in their own in their own view, in their own somewhat um, you know some might say um, uh, twisted view of of reality in some cases. Uh, what is in fact clear and what is not clear, and how you can sort of take an FAQ from a program that's totally unrelated and use it as guidance uh, in in a arguably a situation that's it's roughly analogous, perhaps not even entirely analogous. Uh, you know, that's that's I think a powerful concept and something that now I know I've discussed with clients this year who are perhaps unhappy with what they're saddled with in terms of how OFAC is is interpreting something. So I do think that that's a, a an important consideration and concept to carry forward and and one that perhaps has has a bit new life or some new legs to it in in light of this. Um, opinion, which, by the way, was not appealed, um, not surprisingly, because I think the OFAC and, and the SG probably had no interest in sort of further 
um, sort of cementing this as um, as the uh, you know sort of more broadly applicable than in this case. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do think that you know it's I'd say eighty percent of the questions that come in from clients, the answer is I think this is the best read, but it's not a slam dunk. And that is, in some sense, the the problem with all this ambiguity is that you know you and I see these questions all the time, and and I I can I can tell you what I think OFAC will do, I can tell you what I think the right answer is, but I, I there are very few of these questions that come in where you look at it and you say, oh, this is this is obviously what the 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 line is, and you can do X, but you can't do Y, and I would stake my, you know stake my entire fortune on the fact that OFAC will agree with me. I, I you know, at least it, in a not large number of these cases, you just don't know. And, and, it, and so this fair notice principle um, is one that, that hopefully will result in, in more guidance and, and fewer, uh, say, is fewer, fewer enforcement actions um, in situations where it really is murky. Yeah. To the extent that OFAC has to think about, think twice before it sort of pushes and relies on a, an FAQ in the Burma program to say, no, no, this was clear. Um, I, I think they would think twice about that going forward. So yeah, uh, I mean, something I, over here. And, and I, I think maybe they'll start using, you know, maybe they should start using findings of violations more often than just penalties, because there's a lot of situations where, you know, it was murky and they, they can do a finding of violation to say, this is, this is how we interpret the sanctions. And so don't do this, but imposing penalties where, the where you know reasonable minds could differ is something that I think yeah. probably offended the court that, that heard this case. Again, my perhaps cynical view here is that the idea that they're going to give up any strategic ambiguity with respect to these um, their own regs and 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 what they're the programs they're administering is is highly unlikely in my view. So I I don't know that there's going to be uh, perhaps it nudges them in that direction, but I I doubt that the we will see wholesale change, and we certainly have not seen much indication that there's change in this regard just in the 11 plus months since this opinion came out. So um, with that, let's put Exxon. We spent a lot of time in court. Those last two topics took longer than the lightning round would necessitate, but I think we're still on pace to wrap this up here in the next few minutes. So two more topics. Number nine, story number nine. So I would say that um, certainly this year we saw a lot more um, and I'm going to use this term. I don't necessarily endorse this term, but I'm using this term because it's a administration term. Uh, a lot more focus on uh, what John Bolton referred to as the troika of tyranny, which is Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Um, and uh, I think we saw obviously a lot of action, and we talked at length about all three of those countries and the U.S. policy toward those countries. I think in some ways. You know, obviously, we've spent a lot of time talking about China. We've spent a lot of time talking about Iran. We already touched on Russia earlier in the program. Um, in some ways, and we we touched on this in our, our pre and post election pods. To me, what what our policy and sanctions policy in particular is going to be with respect to these three countries, and to sort of Latin America more broadly, is one of the more interesting and perhaps uncertain questions that we have going into the new administration. You know, I think there are. Strong indicators, as we've talked about before, that the con the line will continue here, and Cuba is going to um, the sort of the um, the crackdown on Cuba is going to hold because it's politically unpalatable to move away from that. Uh, the Maduro regime has obviously just continued to take um, actions that the U.S. has been denouncing and has been throwing more sanctions at, but. 
to what effect we we haven't really seen um, that have the desired effect. Um, as we know, Venezuela continues to flout the sanctions wherever they can. They have partners in these two countries and in other countries that are willing to do so as well. Um, Nicaragua is kind of, uh, uh, in some ways, kind of a smaller scale version of what we've seen in Venezuela with uh, Ortega and his regime. So you know, and, and not a ton of indication that that what the the sanctions there, which are which are still relatively new, have had much impact yet. So what what comes of all this, I, I don't know. But certainly we we saw a lot of action with these three countries over the past year plus, um, you know, just sort of teeing this up as a, a again, a sort of area of focus and to keep an eye on going forward for any um, certainly for any folks out there who are part of companies or who have clients that do a lot of business in these in in the area or in the region you know i think they're we it'll be very interesting to see sort of what we get next in this area but certainly i think the continued hard kind of push to impose more um sanctions in this area has been a kind of a through line for the past year certainly yeah definitely and i i think that it's been important this year and this is one where the Biden administration will probably come in and reconsider all three of these programs. I, I think that, uh, you know, with respect to Venezuela, it's probably going to continue what appears to have been a, a kind of like a multilateral, multinational approach that the Trump administration has implemented. I mean, I mean it's, it's still only the U.S. that has these serious sanctions against Venezuela, but, but other countries uh, our allies seem to be relatively supportive of the U.S. actions with respect to Venezuela. That's not true about Cuba. It's not really true about uh, about Nicaragua. And so, so you know, I expect to see some maneuvering in this area, but but because to, to try and you know get on the same page as the allies with respect to these three countries, but not as much as I would have expected before the election when I, I really did think that Cuba was just going to go straight back to 2016. And now I think there'll probably be some changes. Uh, the, the allies don't like the Cuba sanctions either, and, and nobody else really does except for the U.S. And, and, and really, it, it seems like some there's there's a support for them in Florida and not a lot of other places, but but the but I I, I think that this is this is something that we'll watch next year because I don't know how it's going to play out, but I think that it it will be different. Yeah. Uh, so with that, we're coming to final topic, story number ten, which is uh, was actually prompted. I was prompted to, or we were prompted to include in part because I've seen some year end review kind of look back pieces, uh, opinion pieces talking about um, the lack of OFAC enforcement this year. Uh, and in particular, really looking mostly at penalty amounts and penalties imposed and sort of uh, enforcement actions. And I think the question that that I have or that we have in the, te- the topic here is really, has there been a lack of enforcement? Is enforcement just kind of taking a different form right now? And, and that's certainly been something we talk about and think about a lot. And so we did think it was kind of that broad topic was worthy of inclusion as our final one here. Yeah. So I'll, a couple of quick thoughts on enforcement. So it is down in terms of penalty amounts. I'm not sure that means really a lot, because if you take a look at the enforcement actions as they come out, 
um, they're usually years and years behind when the actual conduct occurred and they've been going on for a long time. And so the fact that they settle in 2020 doesn't necessarily mean that that's what enforcement is like in 2020 because they're really the product of enforcement that took place in 2016, 2017. I think fewer of them are getting resolved this year in part because of COVID. So it does make it a little bit harder for OFAC to act in these sets of circumstances. I also, because there are fewer actions as well, um, particularly with respect to, you know, settlements. Uh, there, there's there's a lot of um, designation actions, but still it's down a little bit, I think, for the same reasons that COVID does actually limit OFAC's ability to do these large scale enforcement actions. Um, but I, I will also say, if you look at the amounts, um, one thing that is unique uh, or that is happening this year is that I think that a lot of the you know, the stripping cases were the ones where the penalties were huge. And in, by stripping, it's the, the cases where the, the swift wire transactions are altered by the bank or were altered by banks repeatedly to hide the, the um, fact that the transaction was with a U.S. sanctioned country. Those enforcement actions were all in the billions of dollars, or many of them were in the billions, hundreds of millions for some of the other banks. Those are pretty much winding down. And so it used to be, and, and last year was no, you know, was no exception that you would have one or two of those enforcement actions every year. And so the total would be the total enforcement numbers would be really in, uh, affected by those big actions against the banks in there. I think those are getting fewer and fewer because the banks presumably are coming into more compliance. And so there's just not as many of those in the pipeline. So I think that that COVID has affected enforcement some that uh, that this, the amounts have been affected by the fact that the stripping cases are really starting to wind down because they're old, they're you know, two, 2008, 9, 10, 11 type conduct. So before the banks really upgraded their compliance programs. And I, I, I think that, that, that it's really not a situation where OFAC has decided that, that it's not gonna enforce any programs. I mean, some it, it had been very slow. I think Russia was an example of that, but Iran, is I don't think OFAC has made a concerted decision to slow down enforcement with respect to Iran. Uh, same way with Venezuela, same way with some of these other countries that are that are that are priorities. It's just I think there's a variety of reasons that the numbers might be low um, related to COVID and related to the fact that the, the big cases um, are not around anymore. Yeah, I agree with that. I think to the extent that anybody sees headlines suggesting that OFAC enforcement is down. Is this a trend? What does this mean? I think that's all just a red herring. I, I totally agree. I think we've talked about this a lot. The big cases, the big bank cases that Tim talked about, those artificially inflate the numbers. Those take years and years and years to resolve. There could very well be some in the pipeline right now that we don't know about True. that are going to come out next year, year after, three years from now. Um, when those are part of the calculations in terms of penalties, you're adding, yeah, hundreds of millions of dollars. Last year was a billion plus in penalties, but it was a attributable to two cases, really. And everything else was pretty much in line with what we've seen this year, which is 20 million plus in penalties across the board. Um, same in, in some of the prior years. So I think it is uh, misleading to say that OFAC enforcement has sort of dipped or that there's anything to be gleaned from that. Um, I think that to Tim's point, and we've talked about a lot, you know, designations have been put at a premium. That is the thing that OFAC has been uh, you know, there's new pro many new number of new programs rolled out this year, lots of designations that have still occurred kind of consistently throughout the year. Uh, and, and then, and that's all with COVID in the background. And we know that that has impeded the ability of, uh, the treasury department and other agencies to 
physically be in the office doing the work they need to do to get this out. So I, I would say that our our take, I think we're in agreement that I would not read anything into the numbers. I think I think it is basically business as usual. That's that's basically what we've seen. I wouldn't expect that to change much. I think uh, you know OFAC to their credit runs largely um, the same sort of no matter who is in the White House and is sort of going about their business and working through these cases and these matters uh, in a pretty kind of consistent fashion. So I think that is what we have seen over the last several years and what we will likely continue to see. Obviously, on top of that, priorities, programs change, but uh, how these enforcement actions get handled and the pace and vigor with which they're pursued doesn't seem to be impacted very much. So I would I would caution anybody who thinks that uh, they can take anything from the numbers this year. And of course, as we're saying, as we're sitting here saying this, there will probably be a billion dollar resolution right. announced on Christmas Eve or something like that. And then uh, and then that will not be part of this. But as, as we sit here now in, in mid-December, not the case. But it, I mean, and that wouldn't surprise us at all. I mean, we'll yeah. be inconsistent with anything that we're saying. It's just right. I, when the settlements come out is right. relatively random. And and to the extent it's not this year, I think it's mostly COVID related that it might have slowed yeah. some of the settlements down. Yeah, agreed. So with that, I think that wraps up our top ten. The top ten sanctions and export control stories of 2020. Woohoo! Big big celebration. Pop the pop the champagne. Absolutely. Um, with that, I will just say um, a couple of quick honorable mentions that I will throw out there and then let you react or add to. So what we did not talk about, we didn't talk about uh, a couple of other worthy topics that could have been included here. I think more aggressive and extensive use of human rights related um, sanctions, specifically the Magnitsky Act. Um, Tim did allude to it when we talked about the um, what's going on in Xinjiang and China and with the with the Uyghurs. Um, that is, but we're seeing it in beyond China as well. I think that is a, a consistent theme that we've seen throughout the year. Um, the challenges of providing humanitarian assistance in sort of OFAC compliant way during the uh, pandemic. This is interesting as, as well because I just saw some quotes recently about what's going to happen when. Um, vaccines become more widely available and how are they going to get to places like Iran and Venezuela um, and Cuba and, and the like, that is going to be challenging. And although OFAC certainly has said publicly and has said repeatedly publicly that they're not going to, then they're not here to stand in the way of humanitarian assistance, getting to these heavily sanctioned countries. We know as a practical matter, there are obstacles, there are big obstacles. And how is that gonna happen? And is that gonna create a crisis of its own? So that I think is worthy of thinking about going forward. Relating to that is just sort of generally how companies have managed compliance with uh, sanctions and export control regulations in the midst of a pandemic when everybody is sort of scattered to the winds and not all in one place. Um, how do you do that remotely? How do you oversee these, these issues? How do you have make sure your controls are sort of properly attuned, um, et cetera? Um, another favorite of ours that has come up a few times is the ICC executive order, which has been viewed obviously very um, in a very uh, sort of uh, negative light by the rest of the world. Um, you know, what is the future of that in the new administration? It is, it is, is that going to wither and die or is that going to continue to have some, some weight? And then uh, another topic that we didn't talk about, but has obviously come up a lot throughout the year. Um, North Korea. We haven't talked much about North Korea. Obviously, not too long ago, President Trump was making efforts to have face-to-face -face talks with Kim Jong-un. Um, despite that, uh, and that really resulted in, that really went nowhere. 
Um, and so the, the sanctions enforcement and uh, on North Korea has kind of continued to pace more or less, but it has not been, I would say, sort of of the highest priority, certainly, of this administration. So although it is it is always there and we we certainly see and get questions about it a lot, uh, it has perhaps not risen to the level uh, of scrutiny and import that some of these other topics have. So that's what I had on my honorable mention list. Do you have anything to react to or to add to that? Yeah, just some reactions. I mean, that sounds, that 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 list sounds about right. I, I think we'll see, you know, in 2021, with, in, we'll continue the trend of increased use of, of human rights sanctions and the GLOMAG um, sanctions program. I think, um, you know, you, you mentioned, Brian, that, that getting vaccines into sanctioned countries uh, can be a can be a challenge and that humani- providing humanitarian assistance over the course of the last year into sanctioned countries has been a challenge. OFAC could fix that if it wanted to. And, and I, I think that the decision not to or the decision to, to really not do as much as they could probably goes beyond OFAC. You know, comfort letters go a long way. Specific guidance, which OFAC, you know, to its credit, did put out goes a little way. I mean, the, 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 the problem is that it's very hard to provide guidance for every particular type of situation. And when you're dealing with a country like Iran or Venezuela, Western companies are so scared of U.S. sanctions that unless you have a specific you know, letter or guidance that is really tailored to that situation, um, you know, it, it, you're going to fight face a lot of resistance among Western countries to do business, even humanitarian business in, in sanctioned countries. If if OFAC wants to get the vaccine into to you know Iran and Venezuela and other places where it would be to everyone's benefit to get the vaccines into. Uh, they can make that happen. And I, I hope we'll see more effort on, on that sort of thing in, in 2021. You know, it, the, the the final thing that I will say is I hope that we're not talking about the International Criminal Court Sanctions Program uh, this time next year. I, I do predict that if one sanction program goes away, it will be that one that that I view that program as an embarrassment. And I, I hope it's not long for this world. Yeah, we shall see. We shall see what happens. Um next year 2021 so that is um that is officially a wrap that is officially a wrap for embargoed in 2020 uh we've made it tim we made it made it to the end we thought we made it we made it impressive um there were times when perhaps we were (laughs) doubting whether we would but we have made it from the comfort of our our own homes um in all seriousness to everybody out there again thank you for listening thanks for being supportive throughout the year um we really do appreciate uh, every one of you who've been out there kind of providing feedback and encouraging words and hopefully getting uh, a little diversion, uh, whether you're a trade nerd or uh, a normal human being uh, in listening to the pod on your while you're walking the dog or going for a run or whatever the case may be. Uh, I hope these days, given the way the virus has progressed, that you're doing that with a mask on. Uh, but uh, it certainly is um very encouraging to us and we're, and we're thankful and grateful for that so we we just want to say a big thank you to everybody out there yeah thanks a lot everybody and and stay healthy and and thanks so much for listening to the to the show you know we we hear your feedback and we try to incorporate it and you know maybe at the beginning of next year we'll we'll do a we'll do an episode that's devoted entirely to answering your questions Yes, absolutely. So until 2021, uh, stay safe, everybody. Happy holidays to those of you who are celebrating holidays coming up here. And of course, stay sanctions free until next year.
Thanks, everyone. Happy holidays, everyone. Bye.